I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello. And welcome to The Conology, the podcast that brings together the family of films from one of the world's greatest anime filmmakers, Satoshi Kon. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm newborn to all of this. So join us on our quest into the world of Satoshi Kon. Hello, Michael. Hello, Steph. It's lovely to be back with you exploring the chronology. And so far, we've watched two films, Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress. And I've had a couple of weeks to sit on them both. And uh, safe to say, I will have to watch them again. Um, But which film am I probably going to be watching a lot on repeat this time? So this week is Tokyo Godfathers. Um, a bit of an anomaly, not only within Satoshi Kon's filmography, but also within anime in general. It's a Christmas movie. Really something different. Another left turn for you, Jake. I'm up for that. I love a Christmas film. Um, I, I don't think I've ever encountered any reference to Christmas in any of the films that we've watched on the podcast so far. Uh, so I, I'm really up for this. And I've heard that it's like it's putting aside a lot of that that crazy kooky stuff that we saw in those first two films so i'm sure we're we're definitely going to understand all of this one i'm hoping you promise me i will understand one of these films of course but i think as with as with tradition we should have a synopsis up front with a hefty spoiler warning uh, if you want to see the film first go away pause the podcast we'll be here when you come back and we'll delve deep into Tokyo Godfathers then. But first, Steph, could you let us know what happens in the film? On Christmas Eve in Tokyo, three homeless people's lives are changed forever when they find a baby girl at a garbage dump. As the new year fast approaches, these three forgotten members of society band together to solve the mystery of the abandoned child and the fate of her parents. Along the way, encounters with seemingly unrelated events and people force them to confront their own haunted pasts as they learn to face their future together. Okay, right. So this is the third Satoshi Kon film. As always, it is as interesting to talk about what's happening in the film as it is to what goes into making it. And with all of these like wonderfully invented films that we're watching in this series, Michael, what is what is up with Satoshi Kon at this moment? What goes on before Tokyo Godfathers? So Tokyo Godfathers, he starts this one right after Millennium Actress is released, but we'll come to timelines a bit later. First of all, I want to talk about this curious film. It's both a Christmas movie, it's also focusing on homeless people in Tokyo, which are two things that aren't really covered as much in in, in anime and Japanese cinema in general. So Satoshi Kon said that he takes inspiration from the world around him. There's a great quote, I'm using this from Andrew Osman's book, as we've been using throughout the series. 
He says, my ideas for movies come from the world that I live in. When I walk down the street, I see homeless people. I started to wonder why they didn't show up in movies. It seemed like an obvious topic. And it's true, uh, particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a, a quite a large homeless population in Tokyo. But this is the side of Japanese society that wasn't really being broadcast on an international stage. So it was quite unique that he wanted to make a film around this. Also unique is the fact that he wanted to set it at this particular time of year around Christmas. And this is another quote from Satoshi Kon. In Japan, the last week of December and the beginning of January represent a cross-culture of religions. Christmas is Christian. Then on December 31st, the Japanese listen to the end-of-year gongs. That's Buddhism. And January 1st is a Shinto holiday. So I try to express this cross-religious culture in my movie. So already you've got two really interesting, unique aspects there, um, drawing from Tokyo and the world around him. The actual story and the title are drawing from a completely different source altogether. So that's based on The Three Godfathers, which is a Western novel from the 1910s, which actually inspired quite a lot of films down the line. Basically anything where you have a play on the three wise men, where three unlikely father parental figures look after a baby, Three Men and a Baby, Ice Age, you take your pick. But specifically, um, there was a very famous film in the 1940s called The Three Godfathers, directed by John Ford, about bank robbers who end up having a baby in their charge. And there's an inspiration or influence that's being felt here. And Con transplants the story, or the kernel of that story anyway, into modern day Tokyo. We absolutely must shout out his co-writer on this, uh, Keiko Nobumoto. Um, who Con credits as bringing a lot of the shades of character detail and depth that we feel in here. Maybe something, Jake, I know you've mentioned, the last two films have felt quite cold, maybe intellectual instead of emotional. Maybe there's some character depth in here that you find. Uh, But Keiko Nobumoto uh, is a bit of an anime legend in her own right, particularly anime TV series. She's one of the main writers who works with uh, Shinjiro Watanabe, the director and creator of, wow, many series, Cabo Bebop, Samurai Champloo, Space Dandy, most recently Carol and Tuesday, which is on Netflix. So absolute legend working on this with with Con side by side. So a little bit of production kind of numbers talk now. We don't tend to talk about budgets on this podcast much, um, but we have talked in this miniseries about how budget constraints and runtime constraints inspired Satoshi Kon to experiment with his cutting style. So I think it's relevant to say here that he's actually working with double the budget that he had for Millennium Actress. Now, should we play a quick quiz? Do you want to guess how much a film like this cost, Jake? Oh, gosh. I have no idea. Um, the only budget stuff that we've talked about is Isao Takahata getting far too much of it and far too much time as well. <laughs> um, I'm going to say t- $2 million or the equivalent to $2 million. Okay, wow. Okay, you're really not that far off. This was $2.4 million to the $1.2 million of Millennium Actress, which, considering these are you know quite labour-intensive movies, um, that says quite a lot about the workplace practices and labour practices of the anime industry. Yeah. I know that Helen McCarthy talked about that, didn't she, on our live episode at the British Museum about how that's a real problem for the and industry. I- Actually, we haven't mentioned, I don't think, on these films, or maybe maybe we mentioned it on Perfect Blue, about what's the length of time that they actually take to make? So this is an interesting one. We're about to talk about timelines, right? So this film had its premiere, Tokyo Godfathers had its premiere at the Big Apple Film Festival in New York, August 2003. And then the Japanese theatrical release followed that 29th of December 2003. So that's just over a year after Millennium Actress was released maybe nine months from the theatrical release to the premiere of Tokyo Godfathers. Which is, I mean, when you think of directors having their films close together, you think of people like Steven Spielberg doing a Ready Player One, which is effects heavy. And when you're figuring out all the effects, that's when you make the post because you don't need to do any of the fancy stuff. But amazing that to have animation, which would just take up so much time to be so close to each other is mad and this is where this is where we can say that satoshi Kon is sprinting from here on we have 
Millennium Actress, which did, which did have a delayed release. Remember, there was that sort of fallow year between its festival premiere and then its release in Japan. But you go from 2001 to 2007, during which time he he makes three feature films and one TV series, almost one a year by this by that point, or one every 18 months. So he's working really hard. I wonder whether this is actually, in some ways, due to a, a very key difference to how he works compared with our Ghibli pals. He would do an entire storyboard. 500 page storyboard of an entire an entire story and his scripts were robust and solid and there you go go away and animate this guys instead of Hayao Miyazaki being you know trying to <laughs> write the third act while the first act is being animated I just want uh, as, as we saw in some of the documentaries it. yeah I'm just gonna figure <laughs> it out don't worry guys don't worry it'll come to me but they work very quickly and they're paid poorly as well. So it's not a very fun industry to work in. However, the films are fantastic. <laughs> um, it's also really exciting. You know how we talked about Ghibli films sometimes taking years to come out internationally in the UK anyway? Around this time, Tokyo Godfathers is when Satoshi Kon's films get picked up for international release really quickly. So the US theatrical release was January 2004, so literally less than a month after the release, theatrical release in Japan, only four or five months after the festival premiere. And it's out in, on DVD in both the States and the UK by September of 2004. So really quick releases. And it's been picked up for international release by Columbia, by Sony. So they're really nice home entertainment releases. What you don't have um, at this stage is a a theatrical release in the UK, but you also don't have a single English language dub. There are a couple that people talked about being shown on television uh, in various places, but this home entertainment release in the UK at least does not have an English language dub. And it takes actually over a decade and a half uh, until an English language dub is made. And that's when G-Kids, who we've talked about in the past, who handled the Ghibli films in the States at the moment, they released re-released Tokyo Godfathers earlier this year, um, 2020, with a brand sparkling new English dub that accompanied a 4K HD remaster. It played in cinemas just before cinemas closed because of COVID um, and came out on Blu-ray in the middle of this. Um, we haven't had a chance to hear this dub or see this dub because it's not actually made it over to the UK yet. But what's really interesting about it, um, which I think we'll talk about maybe in a bit more depth in the review, is that um, it's, it's in their casting. And we'll talk about that later. So all of Con's films have an enduring appeal with critics and audiences. You can go back and see Tokyo glowing Tokyo Godfather's reviews by the Roger Reberts of the world, Manola Dargis, A.O. Scott. People loved this film on release. Uh, and it's particularly rare for anime fans because of what we just said, the fact that it's set at Christmas. We also have a trans character in here, which we'll talk about shortly, I'm sure. Earlier this year, I worked with Sight and Sound on a special double issue, which was an anime special. Um where we were going to pick 50 essential anime films to recommend to readers. Quite a tough job to do, really, narrowing down an entire industry with 100 years of history to 50 films. And, and we all once, agreed... Once you got rid of the... Once you fit all the 24 Ghibli films in there, that only leaves 26 that you could have really fit in anyway. I mean, we can talk at great length about how we narrowed down the Ghibli films, but we decided that some filmmakers really just deserve to have more than one film in there. And we knew that Khan is somebody who out of his four features really deserved more than one. And I mean, the whole list caused a lot of arguments, so I don't want to go into too much detail, but to cut to the chase, Tokyo Godfathers was there alongside Perfect Blue as the two Satoshi Kon films in the essential anime list, which I think just goes some way to show that it has a great deal of critical regard and appreciation out there for it as well. But I suppose as always the question, Jake, is whether it holds a place in your heart as well. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So Jake, this is your third Satoshi Kon film so far. And while this film might feel like a little bit of an outlier, it feels like a more simple linear narrative. Are you noticing some Satoshi Kon opening scene trickery in this one yeah yeah I'm, I'm sure charlie kaufman would be proud of the lad um once again we're starting it all off with a performance within a performance and a play within a play um and it, the guy just cannot resist it can he um and uh, being raised catholic and already enjoying two of these films already he he's kicking me off with a lovely bit of nativity and then bringing that into another one of his wonderful stories. I, I was quite wrapped up in it very early on. I was wondering when the nativity scene starts, are we going to get, are we going to be following the life of one of these child stars and seeing their <laughs> path to stardom or something instead of the Christmas story that we do get? Oh, I was imagining that, yeah, it goes way down that route. And then we actually end up with like a crucifixion and then this baby imagining the baby uh, that never became the son of God and just bounded <laughs> off into the desert. Um, but no, it, it's it's not perfect blue meets the passion of the Christ. It's something <laughs> else entirely. Um, and yeah, as you say, Steph, an outlier. Um, I mean, I've only seen two of the films so far, but this this feels very different. So. We said that this is quite unique within anime to have something that is so Christian in terms of its representation of Christmas. Many anime series have their Christmas specials where people dress up as Santa or something, but to foreground it with a nativity mass is so strange. Did this strike you as odd at all, Jake, or unique or, or, or not? Yeah, I, th I think unique is the better word than odd because I think the film is very familiar. Um, I think it's more attuned to Western sensibilities than the other films mm. that we've watched. And I think the idea of uh, an animation about some kind of cartoonish societal outliers having to find a baby and it's all set around Christmas and it's a bit more cartoonish. Um, there was some elements here that made me feel like I had seen bits of it before in films that I would have watched when I was younger. Um, which is certainly not the case of Perfect Blue or Millennium Actress. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because Jake, like you say, it does have these kind of Christian sensibilities in its storytelling and Christmassy feel in that way. Uh, but at the same time, you have this nativity scene being played out and this Christian sermon going on, but the people attending are only there because they want the free hot meal that's being provided for it. So I think it really sets it up as... Um, this Christmas story not being the majority and the main narrative of the location that they're in. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's telling you straight away that this is not It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street or anything. Um, this is something totally different. And what I feel is different about it is, is the look of it as well. Uh, and I don't know whether it is that 
that slight increase in budget and I'm not well versed enough in in the process of animation to tell you what makes it look like a more premium product but there is there is something about it the the line scene cleaner and crisper um it feels like the there's a bit more depth to the landscape of it um everyone feels like they've been had a bit more care taken on them well i was reading in andrew osmond's book um about this film apparently the animators were adding in more detail than normal to the backgrounds so i feel like maybe that makes it feel a lot more high-end um and also i mean the the city is so important in the story that it feels important to have that much detail in the landscapes that they're walking around in yeah and and as a city film it's quite different i mean in in the films that we've watched already and and other anime um that is very city focused we often we often look at it from above and we look at the glorious skylines and all the wonderful glass panels and here maybe it feels like we're getting more richness in detail of it because we're approaching it from ground level and that because these are homeless people that live on the street that's where the action takes place and suddenly we are seeing a different area than what we what we are used to it really is a film about tokyo of course it's in the the title of the film but then you have both the opening and closing credits in some way incorporating the tokyo landscape the closing credits has that incredible moment where it's the skyline and the skyscrapers of tokyo bopping along to <laughs> what is it is it, is it Ota joy yeah. uh, they're, uh, they're they're dancing to but then the opening credits where literally the credits of directors etc are all appearing on the billboards and the the cut the sides of lorries driving through the city so it really does want to be a Tokyo movie and we have all of those establishing shots, but you're seeing a Tokyo you don't tend to see from a perspective you don't tend to see from. I find it really fascinating that Hirokazu Kureda's Shoplifters, which came out a couple of years ago, won a big prize at Cannes, did very well, um, was praised as showing life on the margins of Japanese society from a ragtag bunch of marginalised people who came together in a surrogate family on, on the edge of the law. And that's what this film is doing maybe, what, 18 years beforehand. Yeah. And I think with those titles, Michael, that's kind of something that I think that the film is going for that the other films aren't. The other films that we watch so far are, are having fun with ripping us away from the reality that we feel that we're in. Um, but just that idea of wanting to put the credits of who is involved in making the film and disguising them within the landscape that is what the film wants to do it wants to bring you into the landscape and make you feel part of it and welcome you into it rather than try and keep taking it away from you we're always talking about reality versus fiction versus the artifice of animation within these films and this is actually to to date uh, in terms of the, the, the miniseries our most straightforward story however he he still brings in elements of stylization and uh, flashy storytelling throughout so you, you mentioned jake that the animation style the character designs feel a little bit more a bit more high-end the production values are a bit higher on them and i think it's really interesting how he's there's a flexibility here we talked on the Perfect Blue podcast about how some of his characters were a bit more grotesque, a bit more ugly compared to the, the pristine lines and colours of a, of a Ghibli film. In this one, it's a little bit more cartoony whilst residing within a very detailed world. So there's that push and pull between the cartooniness and the real world location. There's also something I must shout out. There is a self-reference very early on in the film when they walk past a shop window and you see posters for Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfathers. So even though this is his most straightforward film out of the three films he's done so far, he can't resist to show you the poster for the film you're watching in the film itself, which is <laughs> feels almost like it should be something from Perfect Blue in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and I think you, you kind of got him, allow him one little bit of it if 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 that's what gets him to make the rest of the film and and we do get these sneaking things that we recognize um there's a particular bit where uh, a character is is on a train looking out the window and sees something that is a kind of a haunting from their past life 
And that is something that could well have been in the previous two films as well. And so Khan does seep into it or what we know of him at this point. Uh, but it, it is quite refreshing to watch something that feels so accessible. And we said Millennium Mattress was more accessible to Perfect Blue. I mean, this feels like Paddington compared to, to those films. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how kind of between Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress, we were talking about this kind of identity and how that is portrayed on screen and kind of star identity. And then between Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfathers, you've got this idea of memory and how memory works. And you're going into all of these characters' own personal memories of their own lives and kind of how they came to be homeless um so you're you're still kind of jumping around and delving into the past but in a much more simple timeline yeah but it's not simple simple it is giving us arguably a, a simpler plot to give us more complicated characters mm-hmm. um and yeah. give us more characters with depth and we've got three key characters here this this is an ensemble piece i don't think any of them can be the main character and i would say that all three of them have more depth than any of the main characters in the previous two films that we've watched and there is like you get a real reward in getting to know them across the 90 minutes of this yeah and and that's because the last two have been looks at these main characters refracted through the perspectives of other characters or from society or the industry that they're part of. This one is more traditional. And Jake, I know you loved the key in Millennium Actress. Of course we have a key here and the key is being used in the most conventional storytelling fashion you can think of. It's literally to drive the narrative forward. If they just found the baby, maybe they'd think about keeping the baby or giving it to the police but if they find a baby and a mysterious key <laughs> that's where the journey begins right <laughs> yeah. but it's so true that um there is much more um attention given to fleshing out these characters and making them not only a delight to go on this journey with but also to watch they each have their own visual life within this film who's your favorite jake i think my favorite is miyuki because i think she is so funny I think that this film has a different sense of humor to that of Millennium Actress. Millennium Actress uh, relies on almost kind of slapstick meta comedy. Um, it's almost looking into camera, that film, uh, when it's alerting you to a joke. Uh, but this film has jokes that are a light titter and then proper uh, belly laughs in it as well. And I think she is responsible for a lot of those. And and it's a mixture of stuff because it is, it is quippy one-liners, but then there are really funny jokes that take a while to pay off as well. It's a, I think it's a really smart script. And I, I wonder if that is Keiko Nabumoto's input on this really shining through. Steph, I know you like the baby, but do you have a favourite of the Godfathers? <laughs> um, I do like the baby. Extremely cute baby. They did really well with the animation on that. Um, I really, really like Hannah. I think she's a really interesting character. And I know it is an ensemble piece, but I feel like she just edges over as slightly more of a main character for me. Um, but I think she's so... I think the the character design and the animation is really coming into effect in this film with these characters. And I think this is such a good example of why a film like this needed to be animated instead of made as a live action film, because you get these expressions that are just so over the top and just can't really be replicated um, with a, a live action face and just the kind of, the the designs of all the characters, the stature, like Mi- Miyuki's massive hat that she wears, and all <laughs> like just completely adds to all the character design. Um, but I think Hannah has done really well, um, with a few caveats. I mean, I think we're gonna kind of come on to this to do with her character. Um, I think her face is definitely made a lot more cartoony than the others. Um, but then again, she is a very kind of dramatic, over-the-top character and she cries at random things and has all these kind of um, dreams and jokes and is kind of messing with members of society that they pass a lot. Um, but I think her 
search for family and her story throughout is is a really interesting one. I, I think that Gin is um, is expressionistically animated at times as well, particularly during mm. some of the more action sequences or where he's really um, getting angry. You know, he, he he turns into the sort of yammery, cartoony anime uh, character there. And also he has moments where he turns red like a thermometer as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say that Hannah is overly caricatured compared to the others. I do love how that Miyuki is like a 15-year-old bag lady. Um, yeah. If you take I'll, the archetype I'll, character from Home Alone, but as a 15-year-old. <laughs> and I think one of the biggest laughs for me in the film is when there's a single shot of her as a crazy cat lady. Uh, and it is so good. She's just brilliant. And I'm referring to it like it's like some performance, which could only be improvised <laughs> by a classic comedian. But of course, uh, it is all in the animation as well. Um, and Michael, you mentioned the action sequences. They're, they're really, really good in here. And they're, they're, there's a joke for two thirds of the film that they are, they're homeless bums. They're not action movie heroes. And that's just this great little nod that you get at the start, full well knowing as soon as you hear it that that's going to pay off later on. And we, we get mm-hmm. some great little chases that are all laced with comedy as well. There's a great kind of re- relay of theft between different modes of transport getting stolen by the next person behind them. Um, <laughs> but then the action itself is really well animated and really well staged. What I love about that, I know Steffi said that it sort of leaves the Christmas tradition behind at the beginning, but I think this is almost a Christmas movie in the sense that it's about Christmas miracles and the unexpected happening during this magical time of year. And I love that Satoshi Kon takes that as genre-wise, the unexpected thing happens. So you're following these almost comic caricatures on their shaggy dog tail, uh, trip around tokyo and they're at a graveyard where they're snaffling the tributes given to the dead by the fat by families and where they find actually a, like a pack of nappies left on a child's grave which is actually quite dark when you think about it and then they just have to be leaving and they find a guy buried in the snow under his car who they save and then he takes them to like a mafia wedding where there's a hit being done by an assassin who happens to be like it that, that, is he speaking Spanish or Portuguese? So you don't even know what the what's going on here, and there's suddenly a gun and all this running. It's I, I love that it takes those twists and turns, particularly the final action sequence, which, as you say, Jake, is so well staged. And I'm going to invoke the name that we bring out a lot when we talk about action sequences here, but it's a lot like Indiana Jones, where Gin is having his moment where he's cycling a bit along the van, the truck that sort of turns into the wall to pin him against the wall and you think, oh no, he's dead, but actually he's hanging on, which is just like the you know, I- I- iconic Indiana Jones chase sequence with the tank. Yeah. Um, and would not I expect mean, that stuff to happen in this film. No, no, you really wouldn't. And I would... I mean, I'm just bringing together literally like the two things that I would have watched the most when I was a kid. Um, we've mentioned Indiana Jones and I'm going to bring in Toy Story as well, because I, I think that the chase at the end of this is so reminiscent of the chase at the end of the first Toy Story with um, Woody and RC and trying to get onto the moving truck and then with Andy's car in front. And it totally feels like that to the point that i thought it might have even been a reference to it um but it it is that is i feel recognized as an iconic chase scene and this should be too and yet it always brings this back to really emotional moments and i wonder whether this resonated with both of you just the the fact that you'd have the the assassin moment and the the taxi car chase but then this quiet moment afterwards where Miyuki's hanging out with the the partner of the assassin and that there, there's a language barrier there there are the two babies sleeping side by side in the bed it's such a nice quiet moment in the middle of the film yeah and I think with this film more than the other two he's allowing himself to have these moments of pause and to to stage them in a way that they feel more composed um there are kind of constructed frames in here that feel outside of reality. And I know it's an animated film, but compared to the previous ones that we've watched, 
this one feels like it's taking more of its time to construct the most beautiful frame rather than the most representative of reality. And I think, I don't know if it's a signature thing, but I've picked out in all three films now a little moment where he takes one of his lead characters and just has them pause for a moment. And then in that moment, their hair gets picked up by the wind. And there's a little moment with Miyuki in this. And it, this is just littered a bit more with those moments. But, Michael, there is one moment which feels the most Satoshi Kon-y to me, which we haven't kind of talked about. And maybe this is your opportunity to do like you did in our previous episode, to give me some great explanation in 10 minutes and Uh-oh. be done with it. Um, so Gin meets someone who is definitely suggested to be a future version of himself uh, or is at least dressed identically and that person also seems to be father christmas who gives him a gift of a lottery ticket that makes him a multimillionaire. that's that's right yeah i think so yeah <laughs> It's certainly playing with this is who you could be in the future, Gin. I I love, this is a completely off-piste comparison that I'm only making in my head. Um, I'm sure it's not Satoshi Kon's intention. It reminded me a lot of an an early episode of Red Dwarf where uh, Dave Lester sees his future self um, literally dying on his bed. And there's a a similar moment where um, old Lister is saying, oh, come in closer, come in closer. It's to to into the, in the way that the old bloke does in in Tokyo Godfathers, where he sort of has that fake out death, which is a hilarious moment. Considering then the shot that follows is where his face completely darkens and he actually dies. Um, but it plays again on that the whole Christmas thing of um, maybe, but actually maybe not Christmas, but just the American Frank Capra style tradition of reinvention through selflessness. That's like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day trying to save that one life to show he's a good person with the old the old fella, but um, this... and that's Gin having that opportunity himself. But seeing that figure who is himself at Christmas, I said at the start of the podcast, I thought oh, I'm not in for it's a wonderful life. Am I in fact in for it's a wonderful life? This is so in. The, this is in the spirit of Dickens. Well, he has another vision of a potential other life in the doctor who looks a lot like him just very much more cleaned up uh, and successful so maybe he is seeing multiple realities and you also have uh, someone trying to commit suicide off a bridge and people stopping them it's, it's it's i think it's very aware of the tradition of christmas movies and people being given a second chance to look look on their lives so we have to come to controversy corner as we have with um, at least with perfect blue i don't think there was much con- controversy around millennium actress tokyo godfathers has, has developed quite a reputation in the nearly two decades since release around the character of hannah who has been discussed now as being a landmark groundbreaking character in terms of representation for being a trans character in mainstream animation anime film in general and Watching this DVD now with the old subtitles that came out back in 2004, I'm, I, I don't know how I feel about this. Steph, what, what, what do you think about this when, when you were rewatching it? Well, I think it's interesting because Hannah is, on one hand, yeah, there are some kind of outdated um, ideas that I think are lost in translation in the, in the subtitle file that is around at the moment there are certain instances of gin uh misgendering hannah when Mm -hmm. apparently that's not actually what is being said in the japanese version and then there's kind of references to other words and phrases um that have been kind of lost in translation so there's um there's instances where i think hannah gets called like an old fart in the English translation. And that's what she kind of goes off at, um, at being called an old fart. But in the, um, in the actual original Japanese, I think it's somebody calling her an old, like a smelly old man or something. And then she kind of goes off at the, the gendered insult rather than just being called an old fart. So Mm -hmm. I think there's like mistakes in the translation that then kind of take away from 
the depth of that character and um, what she's kind of dealing with. Satoshi Kon had said that he didn't really mean for her to be this kind of transgender character, more just like a drag queen, but I guess that she's been accepted canonically as trans is really interesting. And I think when the G Kids uh, new dub comes out, that'll be a really interesting kind of reframing of that character. Um, especially the fact that they have actually got a trans woman, um, Shakina Nafak, to voice Hannah instead of a cisgender man, mm-hmm. which is what is uh, what happened in the original uh, Japanese version. And yeah, the, the, the Japanese track is very much playing up the sort of a. a, a, a you know, a drag queen type character, right? Which fits mm. perhaps fits in more in the culture of the time, uh, the pop culture of the time. It's just so mm. interesting to see in the decades since that it, this film was unknowingly potentially ahead of its time. Satoshi Khan, I know you mentioned that he didn't really want this character to be that. He, I think he didn't really want this to be a political or socially progressive film at all. You know, he, there's a quote in Andrew Osmond's book about how he was concerned about seeming to be putting forward any sort of statement on homelessness or on these characters. Um, Mm. So very much backing away from that, unlike Miyazaki, who very much wants you to know what he's saying all the time. So we have something here that is almost so groundbreaking and ahead of its time that can now be reappropriated through dubbing, which Mm. we've talked about dubbing in the past as being the great... um, the great sin of uh, localization. <laughs> but actually, this is almost kind of reaffirming something that is at the heart, uh, the heart of this film that needs to be celebrated. I'd be so fascinated to um, watch this new dub because I hadn't seen this film for a few years. I watched it, um, God, maybe, maybe in the late 2000s when it f- first came out on DVD and was surprised and delighted to see that it had been embraced by so many people online as being a very rare case of that sort of character. And then I rewatch it now and I see all of this, you know, as you say, misgendering, quite abusive language and moments in, in the film. Of course, maybe that's just true to life, true to the experience of this sort of person, but I don't think the film makes a stand to say that this is the sort of character it is. So to then have G-Kids take that stand and say, no, this is a progressive ahead of its time characterization is really fascinating Mm. and yeah we'll have to see what it looks like yeah and I think well I think it stands as a testament to the film actually being quite progressive um for its time that it is more of a issue with the dubbing because I mean the scene where Gin gets beaten up by um a bunch of teenagers that could have so easily been Hannah being beaten up in some sort of um Mm -hmm. kind of hate hate crime against her as a trans woman um but i think the importance of showing um a trans character being made homeless when it is such a um such a real experience for so many lgbtq people even now i think that is really important that that is shown even if satoshi kon was saying kind of i didn't want to be political with it just kind of showing that precariousness of her situation is like a really important um thing to show it's actually really interesting there's another comparison i draw so hannah's story is that she was a a singer dancer in this club and it's it's implied that um there was a maybe a a person who went to that club that she was shacking up with who died, and that's why she's mm. ended up on the street. Isn't that the story of a fantastic woman, the Sebastian Berlioz film from a couple of years ago? Uh, which is really fascinating comparison to draw, you know, that may- maybe was Sebastian Berlioz another person to add to this list of people inspired <laughs> by Satoshi Kon? But I think this is to chalk it up as another one, like the internet, stardom, fandom, online personalities, and the fracturing of of, of our view of the world because of that in Perfect Blue. Chalk it up as another example of Satoshi Kon being so ahead of the curve that we're only just now realising that's what these films are about. (laughs) But before we sign off um, on Tokyo Godfathers, any other little bits that you want to shout out? Jake, I'll come to you. Um, Well, something that I noticed quite quickly was that the park in which they live, I think we we have actually been in. and it was near our hotel because it's underneath what we immediately recognize as a very evil looking building um, that 
glowed red amongst the fog uh, that we could see from across the park in our little hotel rooms and then amazing that it, it panned down this building that we immediately recognized and uh, there was their little shack <laughs> amazing <laughs> we'll have to go back and maybe recreate some scenes clearly <laughs> um, yeah I think I think well I mean there were four of us out there um, us three and then of course producer Harold and I wonder which one of us was the baby I suppose if we're, if we're talking about uh, knowledge I am the baby. I'm baby. Um, and you, you three are my godfathers. <laughs> Steph, any final comments on Tokyo Godfathers? I know we talked about the kind of those little moments where Con leaves room to breathe and reflect. Um, and I think Hannah's little haikus are a really nice example of that. I think she does maybe three in the whole film, but they're just this lovely little pause every now and again as the film goes on. And I think it's really lovely and poetic. Lovely and poetic. I think that's a good point <laughs> to finish on with Tokyo Godfathers. Now, with three films in, so I think this whole popularity contest thing can gather some steam. So, Jake, we're going to have to put you on the spot and rank them in a second. So, Jake, it's time for the very aptly named by Michael popularity contest. Uh, so we've got three films now for you to rank. Um, Perfect Bloom and Ending Actress and now Tokyo Godfathers. Uh, what order are you putting them in? Um, I feel like that when we get to the end of this, this is going to be really different to the Ghibli lists because the Ghibli lists, I, didn't, I think they didn't really shift much as we were going along. But I feel like with every week that I have to then think about the films... I appreciate them more. And that's true of Millennium Actress, which I was maybe a little cold on straight away, but the more I think about it, the more I like it. Um, and I'll probably say exactly the same thing in next week's episode as well about Tokyo Godfathers. Um, but that's all in setup of me saying that currently it goes perfect blue Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Jake, are you finding, what's the gap between these three films for you? Is there a gap? Is, so if we talked about tiers with Ghibli, where we have the Totoro tier, the Ponyo tier, whatever, whatever, whatever we talked about, are they close? Um, I would say right now, Tokyo Godfathers and Millennium Actress are close and Perfect Blue is a tier above. Fascinating. I, I, can't dis I won't disagree with you because I think my ranking is similar. Although I do know a few people that would say Tokyo Godfathers is their far and away their favourite. I, I can see that. And I can see that even being true of myself. <laughs> um, but as I've mentioned before, I can immediately recognise that all of these films get more and more worth out of a rewatch. Um, and I, I can't wait to go back into all of these and just reshuffle that list. Where would it come on your list, Steph? Uh, I actually think if I'm going on kind of which one I'm most likely to rewatch and get something new out of, I think I would actually put Tokyo Godfather's just a tiny bit above Millennium Actress and then Perfect Blue at the top. Um, just maybe because I haven't watched this one as much and um, just on rewatch, there was just so much in there that I had kind of forgotten about and took so much joy out of. Personally, Tokyo Godfathers, I think, is the one that has every likelihood of going higher up my list because it's one I've not seen at the cinema. I think I, I did mention with Millennium Actress that seeing it in the cinema was a real eye-opener for me. Um, and also seeing this new dub might change my opinion on it completely. It's one that mm. can really benefit from a big screen viewing. I've only ever seen it at home on quite an old DVD. So again, 4K restoration might just make some of those you know, eye-popping sequences pop even more. But I, I love that so far we're all in agreement these are pretty good films. <laughs> uh, we haven't reached a Tales from Earthsea yet. <laughs> no but we are breaking the formula next week and uh we're not talking about a film exactly so a whole new ground for the podcast so far we're going to be doing a tv series of course 
TV anime is a humongous industry in its own right. It actually eclipses feature-length anime. But we're going to break with tradition and have Paranoia Agent, which is a little series that Satoshi Kon decided to dash off between two features. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how, first of all, we can talk about this, but also see, do you like TV, Jake? No, do you I don't watch TV? The only TV that I watch is uh, Twin Peaks The Return, because technically that's a film. <laughs> <laughs> never well, seen any actually, other tv you know twin peaks perhaps not the uh you know not not a, a bad comparison to make there um in terms of oh you you, know, you can't say that you get me too excited well no i mean a filmmaker who has very much cracked their 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 style on the big screen who turns to the small screen um for, for for another opus so uh, i'm not saying anything there i'm not giving anything away i'm just saying david lynch makes telly in films and so does satoshi Kon. well until we talk about paranoia agent you can get in touch with us on email and on twitter uh you can email us at ghibli at little.studios.com and follow us on twitter at ghibliotech and you can keep up with all of us over there as well michael's on twitter at michael j leader and Steph's on Twitter at underscore Steph Watts. And Jake is on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts, and Harold McShiel. Hi everyone, thanks for sticking through the credits. Now, Hannah's character might remind some of you of Japanese drag queen legend Akihiro Miwa, who actually has a history with Studio Ghibli. Miwa provided the voice of Moro, the big she-wolf in Princess Mononoke, and the Witch of the Waste in Howl's Moving Castle. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 